Join us this year on the 16th to 17th of June 2021 for the All Day All Night, the only live 24-hour higher education conference focused on everything digital and social. We are offering all Education Burrito listeners a special discount code. Just type in Ed Burrito in the voucher section to get 20% off your ADAN21 tickets now. So what are you waiting for? Follow us on Twitter at ADANConf and visit our website on www.alldayallnight.social. Hello and thank you so much for tuning into the Education Burrito, podcast that unwraps the everyday challenges in learning and teaching in education, exploring the ins and outs and highs and lows and different pedagogy approaches, enhancing student engagement amongst everything in education. My name is Q Sum, and each episode I'll be joined by special guests as we unwrap the education burrito. Right, I'm buzzing today because I'm joined in this episode by someone who, with a philosophy background, they previously worked as a good practice advisor and learning technology specialist. Currently a teaching fellow at the institution, and I couldn't believe this, but a huge Doctor Who fan. If you do not believe this, they actually publish a paper on Daleks, which is something I cannot believe again. Anyhow, they also do a bit of uh, writing at the moment on their doctorate in creative playfulness and peer interactions. With an interest in teaching methods, pedagogic theory and higher education, they were named as one of the 15 most influential UK higher education professionals on social media in 2015. Wow, what an achievement. Also, they are part of what I called a hashtag LTHE knit club, as well as a doodle club, which I'm thinking they might be doodling right now as part of their hashtag CL Moog and hashtag DS106. No idea what those numbers are, but anyhow, moving on. Apparently, they are also a UK player. And on the odd occasion, they do a bit of mixing and remixing of digital media, which is something perhaps we need to unwrap in this episode. Anyhow, could you guess who is with me today? It's the wonderful Sarah Honeychurch. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Morning, Q. I'm not sure I can live up to that introduction, but I'll do my best. <laughs> Great. How are you keeping anyway? I'm keeping very, very well. We were just talking and saying that we haven't, neither of us have been able to get onto our campuses for nine months, which is odd. I really, really miss my beautiful, beautiful neo-Gothic building. But I'm very lucky. I've got a good study at home and a lot of my practice is working online, working remotely, working collaboratively with people who are in the States and Australia anyway. So I'm probably better equipped than a lot of people to deal with all of this. Brilliant. First thing first, I guess you are knitting at the moment or are you doodling at the moment? No, I'm doodling at the moment. I've got a wonderful pen made by a friend filled with beautiful, beautiful ink um, and I'm sitting drawing birds. I always draw birds with big googly eyes as people know. Not knitting at the moment. I do have two pairs of socks on the go. As anybody who's part of hashtag LTHE chat knows, I knit socks. If you put your hand up and say you want socks, I tend to make socks for you. So beware. <laughs> I think they're good socks. What colour are your socks, by the way? <laughs> Just randomly. So I'm making two pairs. I'm making a pair for my sister who loves purple and also supports this football team called Pompey. You can, ugh, horrid. Um, so they are blue and white and purple for her. And I'm making a pair for my brother and they're bright pink because one of the things I remember most since growing up was my brother making himself a pink suit on my sewing machine. So pink socks. Nice colour. 
I like subverting <laughs> gender norms. Yes, they're lovely. Yeah, they really are beautiful. I want them for me. Great, perfect. So let's just start off then just chatting about what you do because you do quite a lot of things. You are doing your PhD, but at the same time you do teaching fellow. Yeah, just just tell us a bit what you actually do in higher education. Okay, so my day job, um, as you said, I started as a philosophy GTA. I moved into working as a learning technologist. Then I became a good practice advisor. And currently I work as a teaching fellow in the Adam Smith Business School, which is a big business school in the University of Glasgow. We have about 250 members of staff, professional services staff and academic staff. We have a lot of students. We have big undergraduate degrees and we have big postgraduate programs as well. And my main remit at the moment is I am the assessment and feedback lead for the school. And what I do is identify issues that need a solution. And I bring together teams of academics and professional services colleagues, and we work through thinking about what good practice would look like in business education. And I don't tell people what to do, because that's not what I'm about. But I will advise people about possibilities. So we'll put together a package of good practice solutions that academics can use off the shelf or academics and then tailor for what they want. And it's all about making sure that academics are in charge of academic standards, not being told what to do. So at the moment, we've been working on rubrics, rubrics for assessment, rubrics for feedback. And it really, really helps. A lot of what I want to do is to make learning less stressful for students. And assessment is one of the most stressful, stressful things you can do to anybody. Stressful being a student, it's also stressful being a marker, but so there's two issues. And I know that if we can be very, very clear to what, what our expectations are, we can take some of the fear out of all of it. So we're not spoon feeding, we're not telling students what to write, but what we are trying to tell them is what a good essay looks like, what a not so good essay looks like, and what a fail essay looks like. So students then, they have the freedom I like to talk about scaffolded autonomy. So we give students a range of solutions and what scaffolding looks like in the first year is different from what it looks like in the fourth year. So we're, you know, we talk a lot about independent learners, but you can't throw people in. And so what I think we're doing with the rubrics is helping them to understand what academic standards look like. And then they get this at the point of assessment. And then when they get their feedback, hopefully they understand their feedback because it's written in the terms the rubric was written. And what we get students saying is, actually, I understand why I've got that mark. Because it's not just getting an A. An A is great, but you need to know how am I going to get an A next time? And also importantly, if all you need is a C, then you want to know how to get the C. And this is something we don't talk about enough, that being good enough is all that's needed. Some students, they want straight A's all the way through. But in Glasgow, you do three subjects in your first year. And then in your second year, you drop one of the subjects and you pick up another subject and do three subjects. And then when you get into honours, you either do one subject or two subjects. So the third subject is important because you need it to progress. But it might not be something you're passionate about. So why would you want to put all of your effort into getting an A in that subject at the detriment of your other subjects? 
So that's what I think is important, telling, helping students to get the grades that they want and the grades that they need and accepting that these might not always be 100% or an A. So that's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> wow. And I think this is an interesting point in terms of you touching on um, the scaffolding side and assessments and feedback as well. And relating that to your PhD, I mean, your PhD is kind of what the creative playfulness side and kind of the learning being a participant in it. Do you want to just tell a bit about the PhD? Because that's quite an interesting area for us to chat about. So my PhD is I am writing about a open online community called CL MOOC. The CL MOOC stands for Connected Learning, Massive Open Online Collaboration. Never a course. And it started in 2012 in America. The National Writing Project is a great big project across a lot of schools and universities in America. And it started as a bit of summer CPD for educators interested in connected learning. It was beautifully, beautifully put together. It ran for three years as a facilitated course run by volunteers from the National Writing Project. And in 2015, I found out about it from some of my online friends. And they said, you know, we find this fun. Why don't you come and do it? So I did. And it was a lot of fun. And what it was, was every week, there was a different type, lot of activities that you could do. And it was just lots and lots of online making things. So one week might have been about making visual things and the next might have been about making audio. And every week there was um, little things you could do, big things you could do, and really you could just do anything. And it was just all about making things, digital artifacts and sharing them with each other. And I didn't really know what it was. I just knew it was an awful lot of fun. I didn't know about connected learning. I didn't know there was a theory. I just, I just knew I was having fun. And I just knew that the people I was meeting were really good fun and they were all so talented. And I didn't have any idea how I could be like them. And as time went on, in 2016, the National Writing Project moved away to a different initiative. We decided as a bunch of volunteers that we would run this MOOC ourselves because, hey, it must be easy, mustn't it? Put together a MOOC. Looks like easy. <laughs> and it was, there was a huge team of us. And we put together the MOOC and ran it as a volunteer course in 2016. And wow, that was incredibly fun. As time went on, I moved from just being a participant up to being a facilitator up to being one of the key organisers. And this is very much the principles of connected learning, that what you do is you bring people in and you do learning with them, not to them. So it, it is all. What I'm doing in CL MOOC, again, is a type of scaffolded autonomy. Mm. And I think one of the important things that you need when you're learning, particularly online, is you just need a bit of support that that support very often can just be somebody else saying, hey, I like what you're doing. You're doing okay. One of the very important strategies that we have in CL MOOC is called an affirmation strategy. And you know yourself, when you share something out on Twitter and you say something or you share a GIF, well, you don't share a GIF, I do, but you share something and nobody likes it and nobody comments and you feel a little bit sad. Two people like it and you feel better because people liked it. This summation strategy is very, very important. So at the lowest level, it can just be liking, but at the level, it can actually be replying and saying, hey, I really, really like that. 
And a higher level again can be where somebody takes your work and they do something with it and then they reshare it with you. So that's all the sort of things that we do. As time went on, I realized that it's not that this bunch of people are incredibly talented and clever. Well, they are. But part of it is that when you do things as a community, you see other people doing things, you realize you can do them as well. And very, very importantly, if we want to learn a technology, if I don't know how to do it, I'll just put a shout out to the community and say, I'm having a bit of an issue with this. And somebody will either talk me through it or they'll write a blog post or something like that. So we all learn from each other. Oh, that's brilliant, Sarah. And thank you for sharing that story. And I think you've highlighted the key point there is that sharing, that the sharing practices within the community. Without a community, you can't really do nothing, right? Because especially with your PhD, you need that community to help understand what is the community, the needs for the community, and what can we do for the community. My interest is what influences your work? You mentioned the community, it's kind of plays a big part, but what influences the work that you do in your PhD and how are you bringing the things in your PhD as an educator? That, at the moment, I'm writing my discussion chapter and I have left writing my discussion chapter until the last minute, not because I'm procrastinating, although I am, but particularly because I didn't know what the world was going to look like when I wrote it. And, you know, I started this PhD and you know when you talk to me how much fun I'm having, how passionate I am about it. But at the same time, I was quite realistic. We're a bunch of educators. We're white, Western. You know, we're not representative. We're not particularly diverse. So what lessons was I going to have for my PhD that I could share with everybody? And I didn't know. But with the pandemic and with the fact that everybody has had to move online. I am very interested in how the techniques that I've observed can be translated into undergraduate education because it is all about building learning communities. It's all about people being able to share. It's about being authentic. You know, I've been part of this community for six years. Others have been part of it for a lot longer. So we know each other. We trust each other. And it's how we make that happen in undergraduate courses. And I think there are some ways of doing it, but I, I don't think it's very easy at all. But lessons I'm learning, the most important thing that I'm learning, I think, is all about just being good enough. And I touched on this earlier, that a lot of the time when we share things out in CL MOOC, I share something very quickly. I don't try to be perfect. I just try to make my point. And I think, you know, when we go out into this big world of work, a lot of the things we do, they don't need to be perfect. They do need to be good enough. And I don't think this is something that we are very good at thinking about when we think about assessment. And particularly as students, when you think of yourself from the point of view of the learner, it's always, well, apart from what does the marker want, what's going to get me the mark? It's about being as perfect as you can. So it's, it's how we design learning opportunities for students and give them time to engage with them. It's difficult. You know, as a, as a student, very often you only do things when you get marks for them because you've got so much pressure of time. But as soon as you're marking something, you take all the fun out of it, don't you? Yes, I think, well, I've been a spear learner for quite a while now. And as I move to my doctorate now, it's, it's, it's quite a different experience. I think from my position, I'm quite different to you because you're an educator by day, but then you're also a student doing your PhD how do you find that balance because I've yet to experience that and 
I would be interested to hear your thoughts because you're researching about the assessments and feedback, but then yet you are doing that thing, the same thing in your day job. How do you find that balance? Do you feel like the things you're learning from your PhD is transferred to your role or do you just keep them segregated in both roles? I tried to keep everything separate to start with. And maybe back in 2013, when I started, I could do that to some extent, because I was a learning technologist doing learning technology things. And then in the evening, I was researching. But as time goes on, it's all started to bleed into one. I made a conscious decision only to have one Twitter account. Some people I know have a personal Twitter account and a professional Twitter account. And that's fine. But for me, because I'm an open educator, I decided I would just have one. And so things do bleed in. And so I will be sitting thinking about my PhD in the evening and suddenly I realise that, hey, this is how I need to solve this issue at work or here's how I can approach it. And the other way around as well. You know, I'll be doing stuff at work and I'll suddenly think, do you know what? That would answer that question in my thesis. So I think it's just about a change of focus. You know, if you say to somebody in work, when you've got these 10 different things to do, how do you concentrate? Well, you you focus on the one that's the most pressing, you know, but it is about joining things up. You know, we talk a lot in feminism about the personal also being political. I think the same sort of thing I talk about as an open educator is a professional and a personal. So the personal is also professional and the professional is also personal. I respect other people who do things different ways, but this is just the way it works for me. Yes. Yes. And I think it, if it works for you, brilliant. The way that you do things might not work with other people. So we just have to all find our own little ways that which works for us. One other interesting thing, um, other than the hashtag CL MOOC, you're, I see you've kind of been involved with the hashtag DS106. What on earth is that? Okay. So it's DS106. And again, I'm very much an interloper. DS106 started about 10 years ago, and DS stands for Digital Storytelling. So Digital Storytelling 106 was a digital storytelling course at the University of St. Mary, Washington, and it was set up by the gods and goddesses of open learning, Alan Levine, Jim Groom, Martha Berthis. I don't want to go on because I'm going to miss people out, but these people are fantastic, fantastically engaged open educators. And they set up a digital storytelling course for their students. And they also set it up as an open course. You can pick up a course off the website and as an open educator, you can go and run a course in digital storytelling. And it teaches your students how to make videos and how to do memes and how to do GIFs and all of them. You can set up lots and lots of different assignments in the assignment bank. So one would be a one star one and one would be a two star. And these equate to the levels of how complicated it is. So you can ju- you might just say to your student, you need to pick up 30 stars across the course and just do which assessments you want to make those stars up. So again, scaffolded autonomy. Students can do what they want, when they want, and it's great fun. So there's all of that. As well as that, and the reason that I am really involved in it is they run something called the Daily Create. So people like me submit little ideas of fun things to do, which should take about five to 15 minutes to do. And we submit them. They go into a WordPress blog and then the magic behind the scenes or a team of people just click things to plug them in. And every day at a certain time in the morning, A new blog post is published and it tells us what we have to do for the day. So I haven't even looked at what it is today. 
And then I make it part of my practice that I do the daily create every day. And however it tells us to do it, we normally tell it different, we do it differently because we're not going to be told by any blog post how to do something. So the thing today, it says give Bart some chalk. And there is a generator site that I can go to that I can put some words in it. It'll make Bart Simpson right on the board. So my challenge is what words do I want to plug into it? So some days it's about making a GIF. Yesterday was a really good one. You know this sort of um, obelisk thing that's been turning up in Utah. So, and places. so it was just do something with this. So I took it into GIMP, cut it out and made it different sizes. And I stuck it into the standing stones at Kalanish, which are on Lewis, which is a, one of my favourite, both magical places in the world. So that was my daily create yesterday. I thought about doing Stonehenge and then I thought, you know what? No, I like Kalanish more, so I'll do that. And it's just fun. And I love seeing, I know that Kevin and Ron will do it every day. I love seeing what they do. When there's a formal course running, very often they just say you need to do so many daily creates. And then we get bunches of students coming along. And we're there anyway. And we interact with the students and they interact with us. And it's a lot of fun. And my goodness, my digital skills have really grown over the years. And when I started, I would look at the kind of stuff I did yesterday, I just did in two minutes. When I started a few years ago, I would have looked at something like Alan Levine doing it and just thought, that must take you hours. You're so clever. And now I know, yes, it can take hours. He is very clever, but he's written blog posts and shown me how to do it. Brilliant. Wow. I think it's fantastic to hear how you're just taking that courage to um, to be part of something and then you just kind of taught you and opened the skills and experience in terms of connecting with other people on digital storytelling as well, having that scaffolding autonomy. And it's brilliant to hear what you've done and how you kind of translate that between your day job and your PhD as well. Obviously, you work in an institution and obviously you connect with people, right? But how do you ensure that your colleagues or other member staff are engaged in your work through the things that you do with them? Well, I do try and make it fun. That's the most important thing. It's difficult. I mean, I do it a variety of ways. When we were back on campus, then we had regular seminars. And what I would do is I would organise the seminars. So I would get people from within the university or within the school and get them to come and share practice. Because my previous role was a good practice advisor. I spend a lot of time just listening and watching what people do. Because one thing I realise is that the best people don't realise how good they are. They do things automatically. You've got a really good educator. They will just superb bit of learning and teaching and then you say hey did you realize how interesting that was would you come and share that with other people so at the moment we obviously like everybody we're trying to help students build learning communities so I'm just pulling together a seminar at the moment from some ordinary educators as they would describe themselves and we're going to use that and put that together and then other people can just talk and just give them inspiration so it's all about little things Yes, great big learning designs are great, but it's the little tiny things. The things like if you ask somebody to describe how to make a cup of tea, there's so many stages that are obvious, but if you miss them out, then you get a rotten cup of tea. Same with learning and teaching, I think. You've definitely mentioned a lot of benefits in terms of you know, bringing the fun, you know, bringing that enjoyment to people, learning the skills and connecting with others who you never thought of connecting. And you mentioned you know, connecting with those in, in states as well. And 
these are all very you know very well to say yes we do this and have the benefits but what are the risks that can bring into the educational space i think one of the risks would be academic integrity and that's something that we need to take seriously because a lot of what i do is blatant copying and you know i do it out in the open and i do it with a creative commons license and it is all a bit of fun and say you know if i do use a disney thing or something like that nobody's going to mind but I think when you start to formalise learning, teaching and assessment, then you do need to think about academic integrity. And how do you square the circle of getting students to work collaboratively, but then give them individual marks for assessment? So there's those challenges. And I think you, I think you can get over these challenges quite well by just saying we did work collaboratively and get students to keep a learning diary. Mm. So they say which bits they did alone, which bits they did together, and how it is collaborative and not collusion. So the big, big challenges, but not unsurmountable ones. It just needs a bit of thinking about how we do assessment properly. I think there are other risks that you need to take very seriously. One I remember early on was when we were all remixing, somebody said quite quietly, I wonder how you're going to get make sure that you don't upset people because there are certain aspects of my life that you could find out online and if you mimicked them, I might be very hurt. And yes, I think you need to make sure when you're remixing, you're doing it to honour the person, not to laugh at them. There are some people I know that I can do certain things and they will think it's a joke. And there are other things, if I'm not sure, if people will take it as a joke, I don't do it. And I said, I think that's an issue for open educators, but I think it's something we need to think about very carefully with students. If they are going to start to share personal aspects, you know, one of the ways you build a community is by telling your other people about yourself. But at the same time, we need to make sure when students are sharing, they're sharing in a safe space. I'm not just talking about having your camera on because you can see that I've got my sewing machine, my flowers and my keyboard and stuff in the background. This is fine. But when you get students to share aspects of their life, how do you make sure that other people then don't take the mickey out of them? I think integrity is very important. And as researchers, we're being reminded every single year that having that integrity is so important because at the end of the day, you are doing your work. But then you have to remember that you can't really plagiarise or, you know, doing all these other core things as well. But yes, really important. And if we're looking to the future then, Sarah, how do you think the work that you are doing, whether for your you know, teaching fellow role or your PhD, will evolve as you know, higher education changes? If I'm going to be brave in my discussion chapter, which I should be brave, I thought what I really ought to be doing is I ought to be writing this to the First Minister of Scotland. To be honest, I don't really care about England. I'm going to focus on Scotland because it's my country and it's a discreet place um, and we have devolved education policy. So what I ought to be talking to her about is how Scotland gets things right because higher education is free. So we need to keep it free. But really, we ought to be looking at lifelong learning. We shouldn't just be saying you can go off to university for three years and then that's it. You've, you've had your learning. Uh, there's, a, there's a saying that we we in Glasgow say about Edinburgh that when you go to Edinburgh they'll say you'll have had your tea you know so that's it you've had your learning it's all done so I think we need to we really ought to be applying that and we ought to be looking at lifelong learning and how people when they go into work they can still get opportunities to learn um, but not in this sort of low level CPD training but learning for life. So 
So I would be explaining to the First Minister about my principles of connected learning, because connected learning, what you do is you look at connecting everything up. So you look at taking personal interests and making them academic. You know, without wanting to say that we're all plugged in and we're working all the time, I just want to say that we should be making learning, making work more authentic. So I'd be saying that to her. I'd be putting big programmes in so that people can access the learning. I'd be taking very, very seriously this idea that we want a culture of learning. So I would really want learning not just to happen in a university, but I would want universities to go out into the community and communities to come into the university. And I say I'm focusing on Scotland because we do, I think, have more of a culture of doing this. When I used to be able to go to museums and things like that, our big museum, Kelvin Grove, just across the park from the university, and it's a day out. It's a day out for families. So it's a day out for working class families. So we do have very much a culture of learning, and I would want to just make that universal. So that's my message for the First Minister. Uh, and my message to the parents and the children would be about wanting learning to be for life, not just something that privileged people can go to neo-Gothic towers. Wow. I think you've really highlighted, again, you know, Sarah's top tip there in terms of bringing the fun in. And I hope you you write that letter to your minister in Scotland and hopefully they'll read your thesis, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure she'll do that. I'll just invite her around for a tea, shall I? <laughs> Okay then, so um, I think we can go on for a whole day talking about what you do and, you know, go into more details about the educational spaces, you know, unwrapping the Rubik's, the Matrix, oh, the famous framework. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we'll leave you at like that for today. But so let's end with a fun part. Well, I think it's fun anyway. Quick, short, fire round of questions uh, for our listeners and for myself to get to know you a bit more. These are random questions. So my tip to you is not to think too deep. Are you ready, Sarah? Yes, I am ready. The first question is, who is your favourite doctor on Doctor Who? Oh, oh, that's easy. All of them. But John Pertwee, I think the first doctor is all your favourite doctor. And he was just, he was really such a glam rock doctor. He was hilarious. Tea or coffee? Tea. Preferably green tea. Okay. Super strengths or invisibility? Oh, invisibility. Definitely. Yes. No, I like the idea of um, going down to Westminster and um, doing some things to make Boris behave invisibly. Okay. If you are to pick one learning and or teaching platform or tool, what would it be? Twitter. And this is a personal thing for me because it's the one where I learn the best. And of course, where you tweet all your doodles and connect with other people, right? Yes. Yeah. Your best knitting design. We know that you knit, so um, I know we. Well, I know that. Well, I hear that you're making some crochet mini sofas for your cats. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're not, but you know, <laughs> we might. Um, my my best design. It's a pair of socks that I made for my really good friend Wendy. Now, Wendy's a learning technologist in um, Australia. She's another person I know through CLMOOC, and she crochets, and I knit. And we both love um, Fibonacci and fractals and things like that. So we designed a pair of Fibonacci socks between us, and I did the stripes based on the Fibonacci numbers, and she did a Fibonacci spiral. And then I knitted them for her. And I said, what colours would you like? She said either blue and green or orange. So they're blue and green and orange. <laughs> Wonderful. So what do you do to recharge your energy after a long, stressful day of work? I sit on the sofa with my 
husband and my cats and watch rubbish television and knit and doodle. <laughs> this knitting and whole doodling. Random question though, have you ever <laughs> sewed because you've got a sewing machine? Yeah, yeah, no, I do sew. Um, I don't sew as much nowadays. The last thing I probably made were curtains, velvet curtains for our house when I moved in. We live in a 1930s house, I think, or something like that, with big sash windows. And when we moved in, there were no curtains. So I've got velvet curtains all around the house now. It's lovely. Oh, wow. Other than your phone, what would be the one best thing to carry around to show students or colleagues in corridors? Hmm, that's a tricky. Well, probably my knitting again. Um. <laughs> do, you carry, do you carry them every day, like randomly in the corridors and knit as you walk through campus? I don't actually knit often when I walk, although I very much admire Finnish people who do this. <laughs> I think maybe the Faroe Islands as well, where they tuck the knitting into their boots and do it. Um, I know the reason I started knitting socks was I would always have a pair of socks in my pocket. So if I get to a meeting room and there's nobody there, then I can knit for two minutes. You're taking this knitting very seriously, aren't you? Yeah, yeah it's, it's very serious. The other, th- the other thing I might carry around at the moment is my fountain pens. I have a selection of beautiful fountain pens, which is no point showing because, you know, we're on a podcast. But show you anyway that this is made from wood um, and it's beautiful so I might take these around just to show people how beautiful they are. The scented ones you mean? Yes well the scented are lovely but actually it's it's another point that the reason that I use fountain pens is it forces me to slow down and to write beautifully rather than just to scroll and I think that one of the lessons that I have learned over the last few months is the importance of just slowing down we talk a lot about mindfulness, um, which I don't really understand, but it's very important just sometimes just to live in the moment. And writing with a beautiful fountain pen and a beautiful ink and a beautiful scented ink really helps you just uh, switch off for a minute. We know that you love fountain pens, but other than your fountain pen, what, are the, what is your favourite pen to doodle? I do, normally I use a silver fountain pen but I've got very very other than your fountain pen (laughs) I always use fountain pens I always use fountain pens to doodle I used to use a micron pen um, but actually I just use a fountain pen now okay alright then your favourite music genre oh um, probably gothic bluegrass or something like that there's a band called the Hanson Family and I think that's how they would describe themselves um, incredibly funny lyrics and the reason that I play so many ukes is because she plays a bass uke. Um, no, Neil made me a bass uke. He got a kit uke and he put bass strings onto it and I'm not very good at playing it but hey it's fun. <laughs> what are your alternative career that you secretly wish you had but never actually pursued? Well when I was 18 I wanted to be an opera singer and I was taught by... It's never too late. Well, I think it is. Um, I was taught by somebody who had been a soloist at Covent Garden um, and she just had all her own wigs made for her, which is apparently a really big thing. And then she found out she was pregnant and um, she actually wanted to get me an interview at Covent Garden, but mum thought my A-levels were more important. Mum was probably right. Your favourite learning and teaching hero? Maybe not a learning and teaching hero, but my favourite person is Henry Jenkins, who really is the inspiration for all this participatory learning. Wonderful. 
And finally then, because our podcast is called The Education Burrito, what's your favourite burrito fillings? Oh, I don't actually like burritos very much. I've had a long conversation with Leo about this. So on a Monday evening, we normally have what we call Mexican. Um, and it will have a mixture of guacamole and cheddar cheese in different layers. And then it will have like broccoli and peppers in a tomato garlic sauce. And that's very nice, very, very nice. And then we just get tortillas. So it comes to the table. I have my little bowl with the, my broccoli and peppers and no chilli. Neil has his version of chilli and kidney beans in. So we put it all together. And that's really nice. Maybe you could just put that into the wrap. <laughs> yes, yes, we do. Yeah, we just get to- two tortillas each and we just wrap up whatever combination we want. That's nice. Great. Well, that's all we have time for in this episode. And Sarah, if our listeners want to find out more about what you do, how can they do so? Best thing is to find me on Twitter. My handle is Nomad War Machine, all one word. It's a word that comes from Deleuze and Guattari, and I think it's best I don't say too much about it because I can talk about it for a long time. Um, the other thing is I'm very, very visible. You can look me up. Um, at the University of Glasgow, if you just go to the University of Glasgow web pages and stick my name in, you'll find my page and you'll find all the stuff I've written, um, including a lot of stuff about lurkers. Well, we definitely need another episode about lurkers. That's a whole another topic. But again, a big massive thank you to you, Sarah Honeychurch, for sharing with us your work in what you do in assessments and feedback. But So thank you for joining us, Sarah. And thank you, Hugh. It's been fun. Thank you so much for your time and tuning into the Education Burrito. Make sure to hit the subscribe button on whichever platform you're listening on and be sure to like it and share it on social media, tagging us at the hashtag the Education Burrito. If you have enjoyed our chat today and fancy coming onto the show, no matter as a student or member of staff, do drop us a message as we unwrap learning and teaching in the Education Burrito.